Well, it's wonderful to be back with you here this morning, and um, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to be here, and I'm thankful for the work that God has done in my life, um, for the work that he's done in my family, even before I was born. Uh, I couldn't help but think about this, and Brother Toby mentioned my great-uncle, Robert Gibson. Um, he is uh, a, hes more or less, I guess you could say, a representative of what my family was like just a couple of generations ago. Uh, my great-uncle Robert uh, was in Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary, and uh, he had committed multiple murders. And um, God did a wonderful work of grace in his life, and God saved his soul while he was in prison. And he's my papaw's brother, and my papaw wasn't a whole lot better than him. And uh, my papaw and, and Robert were two out of about 22 kids that were born to my great-grandfather, Earl Gibson. And uh, he was married seven times and uh, viewed all of his, his children basically as free labor for cutting paper wood up in the mountains. And they grew up rough. They grew up mean. They had to be. There were several of the children who didn't survive to adulthood. And they were more or less heathens. And um, my papa was gloriously saved when he was 44 years old. And uh, my dad and my uncles were teenagers or older at that time. And so I'm a member of the first generation of Gibsons to actually be raised in a Christian home and raised in church. And I praise God for that this morning. If you have your Bible, please open and turn with me to the book of Joshua chapter 2 this morning. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 1. The Bible says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent out to Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into an harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house, and hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan unto the fords. And as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. I'm going to stop reading there in Joshua chapter 2, and you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read to you very quickly from Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. I want to preach this morning on the subject of Rahab's faith. Let's go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. Lord God, we praise you, Lord, and we humbly thank you for your marvelous grace, Lord, that you've shown us. We thank you, O oh God, that though we were lost, we were in darkness, we were utterly hopeless in our sins, without Christ, without hope, 
Lord, we thank you that by your grace that you have moved and worked on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that Christ came and died for our sins and rose from the grave. Oh, Lord, I, I want to especially thank you now before I preach this message this morning for your providential work of grace in the heart and life of every person who saved in here this morning. That there was a time when we were hopeless and you caused the light of the marvelous gospel of Christ to shine into our hearts, to shine into our lives. And you called us to yourself to be saved. Lord, I thank you for this. Lord, if there's any here this morning who are still lost in their sins, I pray you would deal with their hearts. Lord, I pray that the, the grace of Christ would shine forth into their hearts this morning, that you would call them to come to you and to be saved now. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. I'm sure you are like me in that there are passages of Scripture that you come to, and you've been over them many times, and you usually leave that text feeling like there's just something there that I'm not fully getting. There's something there that I'm not able to to really grab a hold of and appreciate yet at this time. And for me, for several years, uh, the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 was one of those texts for me. I'd read about Rahab and what took place here and what we just read. And then I would go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, and would see as we we follow the line of of faith there in Hebrews 11, how there are 10 people who are named and there are some statements, at least bare minimum, some statements made about how faith was wrought in their life. And there are are ten names who there's some explanation of what took place in their life given. And she is the tenth one. Um, Outside of those who were alive before Abraham, I I guess you could call them Gentiles. But after Abraham is named there in Hebrews chapter 11, everyone after him who's named as an example of faith is a Jew, an Israelite, except for Rahab. She's the only Gentile who's named there in Hebrews chapter 11. And she's given to us as an example of of one who had genuine faith that wrought in their lives. And then you go to James chapter 2, and you see that just like in Hebrews 11, she is named there with Abraham as an example of faith. And honestly, I would see those texts of Scripture and I would, I would look at what took place in her life and I would think there's just something here that I'm not really appreciating, something that I'm not getting. And uh, back in the spring of this year, uh, I was doing my regular read-through and coming through Joshua and it felt like for the first time the Holy Spirit just really opened up this text to me and helped me to see uh, some, some keys here in Joshua chapter 2 about Rahab's faith. And I want to share those things with you here this morning. I want to start off with this. Let's see what the scripture tells us here in Joshua chapter 2 about Rahab, about who she was and about what her life was like. Now, there's not much mentioned about this, but what is mentioned is very significant. First off, we see in our text here in Joshua chapter 2 verse 1, when Rahab is first named, it says that she is a harlot. 
And that's the description that's given her in Hebrews 11 and James chapter 2 as well. Uh, the harlot Rahab. Now, of course, we understand this morning what that word means, that she was a prostitute. Let's consider some things about this. First off, down through history and really into our day today, the vast majority of women who would fall in this, if you want to call it, profession are not there by choice. The vast majority um, have a life story that is extremely tragic and painful, and most are forced into that lifestyle one way or the other. We read throughout the Old Testament from time to time examples given to us of uh, the pagan nations that live in Canaan land, which is where she lives, that, that prostitution is actually in connection with the false religions that they observed. And young women would be forced into prostitution and, and to serve as harlots, as um, a form of worship to the pagan gods that were served. So in all likelihood, Rahab's life story was an absolute tragedy. Whether she chose to go into this profession or whether she was forced into it, either way you look at it, her life is in all likelihood a painful tragedy based on this fact that she is a harlot. The only other thing that the scripture really tells us about her personal life, other than the fact that she has a family, she has parents, um, which we'll get to after a while, is that her house is upon the town wall. It says in verse 15, it says her house was upon the town wall and she dwelt upon the wall. So here she is living amongst a pagan people. Uh, she lives in Canaan land in the city of Jericho. The children of Israel are about to cross over Jordan River and to come into Canaan. And Jericho is right in the way. It's the first place they're going to come to. And these are heathen people. They have no spiritual light. Um, we do learn from the scriptures that the Canaanites that inhabit the land, other than just being pagan, uh, what comes along with that is they are involved in all sorts of wicked practices. And she has grown up in this land. This has been her life experience, to grow up amongst absolute paganism of the highest degree. And she is a harlot living in this land. And she lives on the town wall. So we see a little bit about her condition and her position here in these facts that are given to us from the scripture. But as we read in verses 2 through 8, we see that there's something very, very strange about Rahab. Now, as she lives in Jericho, this is her native land. This is her home. These are her people. And they have heard, as we'll see in verses 9 through 13, that the children of Israel are about to cross over and are going to come into Canaan land and they are going to attempt to conquer this land. So that would mean that the Israelites are her natural enemies because they're coming to conquer her homeland. They're coming to destroy her city and her people. Now, Joshua, before the children of Israel cross over and come into Canaan, he is determined to send two scouts over into the land to go check out the city of Jericho. 
And as they come into the city, something happens. Somehow or another, their cover is blown because someone reports to the king of Jericho that they're there, that there are two spies among them. And these men, apparently, in a bid to remain inconspicuous, they go to Rahab's house, which would make sense. She's a harlot. It would have been totally customary for men who would come in to visit the city to go to her house. And so they go there, but at some point along the line, their cover is blown. And it's reported to the king that the spies are in the city and that they've come to Rahab's house. Now, this is where things start to seem really, really strange in Rahab's story. Though she is a citizen of the land, though the Israelites are her natural enemies, when the king's men come to her house looking to apprehend these spies, she covers for them. And she tells them, yeah, they, they, they came in, but they, they left out before you got here, before the sun went down and the gates were closed. They left out of the city. I think they were headed for the mountains. Won't you go look for them? And she hides the men on her rooftop under some flax that had been cut to lie there. So she protects these spies. Well, don't you agree that is strange behavior? For a woman in her position. But this is how she acts. And you wonder what would cause her to do this. And I think this is the key to Rahab's story here in the book of Joshua. There are multiple keys actually found in verses 9 through 13. So after the king's men leave and they go out of the city to pursue the spies who are actually still at her home, she has a conversation with these men. And again, this is where the keys lie. Look with me in verse number nine. Now, Rahab speaks to them from verses nine through 13. This is all Rahab speaking. Notice carefully what she says. And she said unto the men, first off, I know. (laughs) Now, don't miss that. I know that the Lord hath given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. So first off, She acknowledges here that she has heard word that there is, number one, coming doom for her city. She says, I know. At this point, we can see not only because she says, I know, but because of the actions that she has taken to put her own life in jeopardy in order to hide and protect these men, we know that she means what she says. She is saying, I believe, I am sure in my soul that who? That the Lord. Now, notice something about the word Lord here in the text. It appears to us. In all caps. That means that she was saying Jehovah. 
Now, she wasn't just saying that your God, um, as if he's just some God amongst all the other gods. She, she had grown up in the paganism of the land. And was very familiar with all the, the full pantheon of gods that her people worshipped and that she had grown up worshipping. Uh, she's not saying some god. She is using the Hebrew word for the one true God, the Lord Jehovah, when she speaks to these men. So right out of the gate, when she begins to speak in verse 9, we see that she is proclaiming a faith in the one true God. And she is saying, I know that my city is absolutely doomed because, not because Israel's a great army, not because they have superior technology or firepower, but because Israel is a servant of the one true God, Jehovah. Our city is doomed because your God has determined that it would be destroyed. She acknowledges the coming doom of Jericho. Now, I want to start right now as we examine these things that she says, and I want want you to see a parallel between what she acknowledges and what we can still acknowledge today from what the Word of God has revealed to us. Now, let me ask you, has the Word of God not revealed to us a similar message? In that the place where we live, this world where we have been born and raised, where we live, that it too is doomed for judgment. Doomed for judgment. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that one day the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come in fiery vengeance. uh, Taking vengeance on all those who obey not the gospel. That God has offered to the world. This world is a doomed place. Brothers and sisters, this world is a doomed place. And we live amongst a doomed people. All the people of this world lost in their sins. Who have not received the word of Christ. And trusted Christ as their savior. Are utterly and absolutely doomed. For the judgment of God. And if you're here this morning. And you are still lost in your sins. Dear friend, you are doomed for judgment. Unless you trust the gospel of Jesus Christ and are born again. So we see she acknowledges the coming doom for her city. Next in verse 10, she says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt. I want to stop right there with that statement. She's showing here that she has familiarity with what God has done for Israel. Now, here she is, a harlot, a slave of sorts. Amen? And she says, I've heard how Israel, they were in Egypt. What, What were the Israelites in Egypt? Slaves. They were in bondage. They were a people who were helpless and hopeless slaves under bondage to Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. (laughs) She's acknowledging here that she has heard of the deliverance 
that God has given to an enslaved people over in Egypt. And she acknowledges that God had parted the Red Sea for them. She's acknowledging, I know that your God, Jehovah, has done for you what you never could have done for yourself. Remember, when God brought them out of Egyptian bondage, it's not that they rose up in some violent revolt and took up weapons and earned their own freedom. That's not at all what happened. They were slaves, helpless and hopeless. And God, in mercy and love, intervened on their behalf And by His intervening power, He delivered them out of Egypt. He worked through the great ten plagues that were wrought. And then once Pharaoh let them go, they come to the Red Sea. And Pharaoh and his armies are chasing after them. And there they were, the armies of Egypt behind them, the Red Sea before them. And they thought, this is it. We're going to be destroyed. And again, God moved. And He parted the Red Sea. And the ground that they walked across on that brought them deliverance was the same ground where their uh, former captors and their enemies were destroyed for forever, never to be able to pursue after them and bring them into bondage again. She heard about the deliverance of those in bondage. And I, I can't help but think as I've, as I've pondered on this, how that must have touched her heart specially. When she considered her own situation, the own, her own problems in life, she must have felt hopeless. She must have felt like there's no way out of this miserable uh, prison of a life that I have. And then one day she hears the news that God has delivered not just an individual, but an entire nation of people out of their bondage. I can just imagine her laying in bed at night thinking over these things in her heart. And I, I can't help but wonder as she thought on these things and, and as faith began to stir and to move and to work in her heart, if she didn't ask the question, if God could do that for them... Is there any way that he could do that for me? (laughs) But they're a nation. And I'm just a harlot. Living amongst a pagan people. In a pagan land. I'm a nobody. Surely, surely. God, that God doesn't even see me. Does he even know that I exist? Does that God care about me? And God worked in her heart. I'm going to go ahead and cut to this part right here. As that worked in her heart and she thought about this, she thought, how, how could I ever meet that God? They are my enemies. The Israelites are the enemies of my people. How could I ever be joined with them? And as the days went on and this worked in her heart, one day there was a knock at her door. And she opened the door. And who was it? But two spies from Israel. Brothers and sisters, isn't the the providence of God an incredible thing? 
Here she was. She felt like a nobody here in Jericho and wondered, could God ever deliver me? And all along, she, God was, or she was important in the eyes of God. And God knew about the faith that was growing and working within her heart. And He was orchestrating a means in order to, to rescue her from Jericho and to bring her into the family of Israel. Now, in the second half of verse 10, we read, she goes on to say, And what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. Sihon and Og were two very great and powerful kings in that region. And God had given Israel victory over them. Now, he had delivered them by his own power from the Egyptians. They didn't, all they had to do was just walk across the Red Sea on the dry ground. But when they come to that region beyond the Red Sea, in time they face these enemies, and God commands them to go out and to face them in battle, but in a different way, yet still supernaturally, God empowers them and gives them victory. Uh, here is a nation of untrained slaves, people who do nothing about warfare and combat against these two kings and their battle-hardened army. And Israel conquers them by the power of God. So it seems to me she's saying in this, I've heard about a people who were once in bondage, who have been delivered, and they're not just delivered, but now they're walking in victory. And they are destroying all the enemies who stand in their way. Aren't you thankful to be a member of the victorious church of Jesus Christ? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, He said, uh, He said that, um, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. To be a member of a church, or the church of Christ, is to be a member of an undefeatable army. Because Christ is our captain, He is at our head, and we have been promised victory. Victory, victory. And she sees that. These people who were once slaves, once in slavery, are now conquering victors. Now verse 11, and as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. So it's not just that she had heard about these things. Notice she says, we, the whole city had heard about these things. Now, what we're going to see in this statement at the end of verse 11 is something that distinguishes Rahab from all the rest of the city. Everyone in that city, it seems, had heard the word that she has just relayed back to the spies. Everyone had heard it. So, they were equal in that they had heard the same thing. But I remind you what I read to you in Hebrews 11.31 a while ago. I'll read it again. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not, and here it is, with them that believed not. Everyone in the city heard, 
but only one in the city believed. When she had heard that word, it mixed with faith in her heart. And everyone else in the city, apart from, as we'll see, apparently her her close kin, her family, everyone else, when they heard this word, even though their hearts melted because of it, there was something convincing in this message, wasn't there? They knew that it was true. Their hearts melted. They were fearful at this word. Yet instead of humbling themselves in belief of this God that was working on behalf of this once enslaved people, they hardened themselves in unbelief and resistance and rebellion against God, Jehovah. And instead of humbling themselves in submission to this God and saying, we will worship this God. Our gods are not like this God. Our gods cannot do for us what this God has done for them. We will worship this God. He's obviously the true God. They decide we will resist. We will not yield ourselves. We will not bow the knee and humble our hearts to this God. We will resist. That's the attitude of the lost world toward God today. Enemies of God. Resistant against God. We're seeing in our culture more and more today open rebellion against God, hatred of God, this exact same attitude. I will not bow the knee to that God. I will not humble myself to that God. But she believes. And it makes all the difference. Just the same today as I I believe many, many of you could testify with me. It has made all the difference in my life that when I heard the gospel message. (laughs) I thank the Lord. I thank him so much for this. I think about I've got two little girls now. We've been blessed by God to be able to adopt two little girls. They're five and two. And we've, I, I pastor a little church in Wallen now, and uh, most of their Sunday school class is them. And so they, they wanted to stay in their Sunday school class with Miss Jennifer this morning, so Mama kept them out there. But I, I think about this as I see them grow. I think about the grace of God in my life. I was six years old when I heard the gospel and fell under conviction. And I went to an altar and trusted Christ to save me at just six years old. You know what kind of a blessing that is? That God saved me at such a young age. But I remember still so vividly, Brother Toby, when God convicted my heart, when that message became real to me. And I knew that I was doomed. Without Jesus. And I humbled myself as a little boy. And I trusted Christ as Savior. I was just a six-year-old little boy. I, I didn't understand hardly anything. All I knew was that I was a sinner. That I was doomed. 
but that Jesus had died for my sins and had risen again from the grave and was calling me to come to himself to be saved. All I knew to pray was this. I I believe the Lord saved me before I ever got out of the pew. But I remember I got up from the pew and I came down and all I did, I, I bowed my head. I prayed. I just said, Lord, please save me. And it's made all the difference. I'm 34 now. I've been saved for 28 years. And it's made all the difference for 28 years. And I'm just getting started. I'm going to live for forever. And for all of eternity, as the ages roll along, I'm going to be saying, it's made all the difference. And I just believe the gospel. And the Lord save me. Notice this last statement she makes at the end of verse 11. This is, this is incredible. This is her declaration. This makes it abundantly clear. She says, for the Lord your God... He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. You know, it was one thing for her whenever she had just heard the word of what God had done for and through Israel. But now, through God's personal work in her life, she is seeing He's God in heaven above and He's God here on earth. I can't believe he brought these men to my door today. If there was any doubt in her heart before now, now surely she sees he is God. He is God. Now she goes on in verses 12 and 13. She says, now, therefore, I pray you swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. Give me a true token that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. Now, here's her desire. Notice her her request here was give me a token. She says, "As, as I have protected you and put my life in jeopardy in order to save your life, I'm requesting that you'll give me a token. Now, the word token we find a few times, or at least a couple times, in the Old Testament prior to this point. We find the first time in Genesis chapter number 9. Genesis 9 and verse 12. After Noah and his family come off of the ark, after the world's been destroyed by the flood, God says, I'm going to give you a token. God was making a covenant with Noah and his family, and they were all of mankind. And so he was giving a, a, um, a covenant to mankind that I will never destroy the world again with water. And as a token, a symbol of that covenant, he put the rainbow in the sky. The next time we see that word is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. When God is preparing to bring the final plague upon Egypt in order to break Pharaoh's grip, to break his heart so that he would let him go. Remember what that tenth and final plague was. It was that God would send the death angel on one night and that whatever house did not have the blood of a lamb that had been applied to the doorpost 
Then the angel of death would enter in and would take the life of the firstborn. And there in Exodus 12:13, he refers to the blood upon the doorpost as a token. A token. And now here she is requesting a token. That there, and what she is saying, give me a, a symbol. It's basically a seal that a covenant exists between us. A covenant that will ensure my safety from the judgment of Jehovah that's going to come down upon my city. These men agree with her. Oh, there's so much. There, there are some wonderful shadows of the gospel message that are here in the text. And we, we don't just have time to get into these much this morning. But, but she requests that. And the men, um, they agree with her. They say, yes, your life will be protected because you've risked your life for hours. And exactly, I just can't pass it up without saying it as they said it in verse 14. The men answered her, our life for yours. Our life for yours. And and she lets him down to her house is on the wall of the city. Listen, she doesn't even know. She has no idea how God is going to destroy Jericho. She has no idea that her house where she lives is in the most dangerous spot of all. Because God's going to destroy the city by causing the walls to fall down flat first. She lets him down by a cord out of her window to flee to safety, and, and, and they go to hide themselves for three days. Our life for yours. Going to hide themselves for three days. We're going back to Israel. Oh, we had time to preach on that this morning. And they tell her then, in verse number 18, Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window. Here is the token that a covenant has been made. A covenant that will provide safety and life to Rahab. The token is a scarlet thread tied to the window. Praise God. Had to be a scarlet thread. We see this morning right off, don't we, the symbolism here. Now, that is a type of the scarlet blood of Christ that would be shed for our sins at Calvary. Friend, that is our token. That is what we hold to and what we cleave to for our safety from the impending wrath of God coming upon the world and upon our sin. And here, when they leave, well, as they're, as they're telling her this, let me just read on here, verse 18. It said, bind this line of scarlet thread in the window which thou didst let us down by, and thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee. And it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of thy house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head. So in other words, Whoever will not trust in the token, if they will leave the house that has that scarlet thread tied to the window, they will have no safety, their lives will be lost, they will be consumed by the wrath of God when it comes on the city. Your only hope 
is to be in the house where the scarlet thread is. Then he goes on to say, and here's this word again, and whosoever. Isn't that something? And whosoever. Listen, he, he doesn't put any, any other conditions on this. He doesn't say, now if there's anybody who, who, you know, has never bowed the knee to one of your false gods, then they'll be safe in your house. Or anybody who hasn't done this, anybody who hasn't done that. No other preconditions. It's whosoever will. Will hide themselves in the house that's marked with the scarlet cord. They will be with thee in the house. His blood will be on our head if any hand shall be upon thee. And he goes on after they leave in verse 21. She knows that they're going to hide themselves for three days. She knows it's going to be some time before the children of Israel ever cross Jordan and come back. It may be weeks. She doesn't know before they get there. But what does she do? Verse 21, and she bound the scarlet line in the window. She said, I'm not wasting any time. I'm putting my trust in the token. I'm tying that cord to the window. And there's the days went by. That scarlet cord hung in the window. And no doubt she looked to that cord. And that was the token for her safety. That her life would be preserved. Brothers and sisters, our token, our hope is in the blood of Jesus. That's been shed for our sins at Calvary. Now I want to hurry up and close. The days go on. And the children of Israel... Then they, they, they come, they cross over Jordan's river, and they come into Canaan land, and they come over to Jericho, and God tells them, He gives them those strange orders that they're to walk around Jericho for seven days, and to, to do those strange acts, and they, they do that for seven days, and then on the seventh day, whenever they blow the trumpet, the walls of Jericho fall flat, in Joshua chapter 6. But apparently not all the wall. Because there was a wall that had a house on top of it. And there was a scarlet th- thread that was tied to the window. And we read in chapter 6 verse 23. Actually verse number. Yeah verse 23. The young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had. And they brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. They were preserved. Whenever God's judgment comes upon Jericho, they were safe. That scarlet thread tied to the window. And I'm thankful that as a, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I, I know that I am safe from now and forevermore. I do not have to worry about the wrath of God in, in a burning, fiery hell. I'm safe. Because of Christ's blood. Now I want to close with this this morning. We see in chapter 6 verse 25. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive. And her father's household and all that she had. And she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day. Because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now here's the thing. Her and her family. It's not just that their lives were saved. But they were welcomed into Israel. Now, there was a time that they had to live outside the camp because they were Gentiles. They were outside the commonwealth of Israel. But apparently, sometime along the line, and probably not too long, there was a man named 
Salmon. And Rahab caught this Israelite man's attention. He noticed her. Now remember, Rahab now, she's been brought out of Jericho, out of utter spiritual darkness, wickedness and paganism of all sorts. And she's now living a new life. She's been brought in amongst the Israelites. Oh, how wonderful it must have been when she sees the tabernacle of the Lord. When she sees those priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant upon their shoulders. She learns about the sacrificial system. She hears the worship of Jehovah. This was a whole new world for Rahab. And then, as I said, at some point in time, she catches the eye of an Israelite man named Salmon. And he sees her and she says, boy, she's something. I like that Rahab. She catches his eye and he falls in love with her. And she marries in to the family of Israel. She's brought in. Now, she spends the rest of her life walking in victory with the people of Israel. Something that that seemed impossible to her in those years that she had spent growing up in Jericho. God has delivered her. He's given her a whole new life. She's accepted into the family. And now her family, including her, they receive an inheritance in the land of Israel. The Bible tells us also in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1 and verse 5. It tells us here, and it's given the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Salmon, who married Rahab, begat Boaz. And Boaz also, later on in his life, would see a Gentile woman. Amen. And he would marry her, Ruth. And she too would be included in the genealogy of Jesus. They begat Obad of Ruth, and Obad begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king. And David was a great, great, great grandfather, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rahab couldn't even comprehend. She had no idea the blessings that God was going to bestow upon her when she first trusted Him when she was in Jericho. Brothers and sisters, eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for those that love Him. We, and I've heard, I've heard my dad say many times, my dad's a pastor, he said so many times in my life, as a Christian, no matter what your state is in this world, you are standing on the little end of something big. And for every one of us this morning, no matter what your past may be, no matter what your current standing may be in this world, if you're saved, you're standing on the little end of something big. I want to close this morning with a few verses of Scripture from Ephesians 2. And this sums it all up. This shows how we, in so many ways, are just like Rahab. Ephesians 2.12, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, 
and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was my testimony before I was saved. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make in himself of, uh, of twain one new man, so making peace. I'm going to skip down to verse 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. That's my message this morning. Pastor, come on.